0: Long termism. It's become one of the hottest and most uh, controversial thought experiments of late. It's the idea that we have a moral duty to take not only the next few generations, but the entire future of humanity into account. It sounds innocent enough, but some of the world's richest people have started hopping on board. Most concerningly, Elon Musk, who was taking it to extremes by, well, talking about colonising Mars as life insurance for the human species. So to get to the crux of what long-termism really is, we're joined now by William McCaskill. William's an associate professor in philosophy at Oxford. Now, he makes the case for long-termism in his book, What We Owe the Future. Welcome to our Little Wildest program, William. You and I have something in common. We're both fond of Peter Singer. How did your association with Peter begin?
1: Uh, Well, I read some of Peter's work when I was a teenager and first learning about philosophy. And I remember reading about the arguments that he made in his book Practical Ethics for vegetarianism and for more liberal immigration laws, Uh, and for the obligation that we have to give significant amounts of our money to help those who are in um, extreme need, those who live in extreme poverty. And honestly, I just thought those arguments were very compelling. Um, I became vegetarian shortly afterwards, and then later in my life started giving a significant fraction of my income.
0: And you went on to co-found the Effective Altruism Movement.
1: Yeah, so Effective Altruism. It's about using your time and money as well as possible to help other people. So how can we do as much good as we possibly can? And then can we switch our careers or start donating more um, in order to put those ideas into practice? And that's kind of inspired by Peter's ideas
0: ultimately. Well, Peter must have been very pleased to be one of the people you dedicated your first book to, Doing Good Better. Introduce us now to the concept of long-termism, please. What is it? So
1: long-termism is the view that we are not concerned nearly enough for the interests of future generations. It's based on the idea that future people matter morally in just the same way that present people do. And yet there are things that we're doing in the present day that could have enormous impacts on the lives of future generations. And so we want to steer things in a better direction.
0: How far into the future are we talking with long-termism? How long-term is it?
1: I think in principle it's indefinitely far into the future where I think some of the things we're doing might have impacts, not just for the next generation or the generation after that, but for all potential generations to come where I really think the human life expectancy could be very great indeed, I think. We may have hundreds of thousands, maybe even hundreds of millions, maybe even hundreds of billions of years in our future. And that means that if there are things like dystopian AI futures or the end of the human race altogether that would impact such long timelines, that would just be of the utmost importance.
0: You say it took you a long time to come around to this idea. Why were you hesitant? And what ultimately convinced you that this was important? I was hesitant
1: for a couple of reasons. Uh, The first was, you know, I just was aware of just the pressing problems that exist in the world today, which just are very serious. And so initially, just the thought of, well, abstract, unknown future people, it was much harder to get kind of morally motivated about that idea. On that regard, I just came to see them as kind of disenfranchised, in fact, because they. Aren't able to, you know, lobby us or write articles about their plight, future generations' interests are severely neglected. That makes it more important to think about what we might do to impact the future. Not less.
0: Well, are we talking about a trade-off to some extent, putting the interests of future humans ahead of those alive today? I think the
1: trade-off is much less than people might think. So one of the cause areas that we've Um, campaigned for more attention to for many years now was actually pandemic preparedness. And I think if those ideas had had greater uptake when we'd been advocating for them, 2016, 2017, then I think we would have had a much better response to COVID-19. Perhaps hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people, fewer people would have died.
0: Now, a major part of long-termism is ensuring that we have a future at all. And you make the point that... uh, There are a number of major threats that humanity is facing, not just climate change.
1: Absolutely. So as well as climate change, there's also the risk of nuclear war. Um, I think it's, you know, a reasonable chance, maybe one in three, that there'll be a war between great powers in our lifetime, the use of nuclear weapons. The atomic Um,
0: clock is once again very close to midnight, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it's a scary situation, and that could result in hundreds of millions of dead, could even result in the collapse of civilization. Another risk I'm particularly concerned about is worst-case pandemics, even worse than COVID-19, where, in particular, advances in biotechnology are giving us the power to design viruses that are even more powerful and even more destructive than viruses that one can find in nature. Again, this is the sort of thing that could lead, if used in war or by terrorists, to
0: billions dead. Um, perhaps even the end of civilization. So as well as nuclear weapons, bioweapons are a cause for great concern.
1: Absolutely, it's something that should really be worrying us because unlike nuclear weapons where we can track fissile material, we can monitor who is developing them, it's much harder to see who are developing um, bioweapons. It's uh, easier to do just in any old
0: building. Your colleague and another Aussie in Toby Ord, uh points out the Biological Weapons Convention, that international body tasked with prohibiting the proliferation of bioweapons, wait for this beloved listener, has an annual budget of less than the average McDonald's restaurant. Staggering.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, we are just phenomenally unprepared for some of the risks that we're facing, it's remarkable that after the COVID-19 pandemic, there has been almost nothing done to invest in preventing the next pandemic. Uh, even though I think it's a very significant chance, maybe 30%, 50% chance that we get another pandemic of a similar size in the next 10 years.
0: Um, and we should be doing much more. One of my great concerns is AI, artificial intelligence. And I know you share that.
1: Absolutely. So. Advances in AI are happening at a very rapid pace, and the leading labs are aiming to develop uh, what's called AGI, artificial general intelligence, which is AI that can do everything that a human can do, except perhaps even better. Soon after, they'll be super intelligent. And that poses a large number of risks. I think there's the significant risk that uh, malintentioned political actors could use such a technology to entrench power. Um, we could have a kind of dystopian totalitarian future. Or we could lose control to the AI systems themselves, um, which them being much more powerful than us could see us as a threat and uh, disempower us in the way that human beings have disempowered chimpanzees.
0: You see another paradox in the possibility of stagnation. Please explain.
1: Uh, yeah, so I think if it turns out that advanced artificial intelligence is very hard, we could instead see slowing technological growth such that we actually plateau at not much beyond the current level of technology. And I think that would be very bad because it would be only a matter of time before there was a nuclear war and nuclear weapons were used, or in fact, only a matter of time before these bioweapons were used. And we actually need to keep technologically advancing in order that we can build the kind of defensive technology or safe technology that can uh, get us out of the current perilous situation we find ourselves in.
0: Was there a similar time of stagnation in the past? Uh,
1: In the past, there have been many, many occasions of stagnations. So consider the Roman Empire, for example. This was, you know, both Greeks and Romans had a kind of flourishing economy, at least for the time. But then after the collapse of the Roman Empire, there was uh, many hundreds of years of economic stagnation um, in Europe. Uh, And actually throughout history, the norm in fact has been for economic growth to be uh, very slow indeed.
0: You bring back the word efflorescence, which I've always liked, and you think that now might be one of those moments, as it was the case with the Islamic golden age.
1: Yeah, so an efflorescence is a period of time, where there's a comparative kind of flourishing of innovation that can be technological, economic, also artistic. And uh, yeah, in Baghdad in the uh, 10th, 11th centuries, that was really the epicenter of uh, scientific progress at the time. But that gave way to um, kind of theocratic rule and a slowdown again in scientific advancement that was happening at the time. And one of my worries is that this current period which is really unprecedented in terms of how much intellectual advancement we're making, could just be like a really big efflorescence followed by a period of
0: stagnation. I'm talking to William McCaskill about his book, What We Owe the Future. There's been a growing push lately, often expressed on this programme, for degrowth. But would you encourage more economic growth and technological progress, not less?
1: I think what we want is... Uh, what's called differential technological progress. So some technologies are just enormously beneficial, Uh, clean energy um, and biomedical technology, for example, that they just make the world a healthier, um, happier place. Other technologies come with very significant risks, such as the technology that allows us to create um, new biological weapons. And what we want to do as a society is try to advance technology that makes us better off and can protect against the risks, and slow down those um, more dangerous technologies.
0: The core part, or another core part of your argument, comes down to values, William. Do you think we can and should act to make sure civilization flourishes?
1: Absolutely. So I think it can be, it's a highly contingent affair. What sort of future we get, even assuming that, civilization lasts a long time. Uh, I think you could easily imagine a future that occurs that is guided by values that are really quite dystopian, Nazi values, fascist values, totalitarian um, values. Or instead, there could be a future with fiving, you know, liberal, egalitarian, uh, democratic ideals. And that's the sort of uh, future I want us to see.
0: Are values dynamic or are they locked?
1: Uh, So in general, I think, and at the moment, values are dynamic, where there's currently a wide diversity of moral views, they can debate, we can make moral progress. But I worry that that could falter in the future, where some value systems, at least some ideologies, try to lock themselves in, where if you can imagine the outcome of a third world war, there's a world government, and that's ruled by authoritarian or even totalitarian ideology, well, perhaps we just don't ever get out of
0: that. That's a worry for me. You see hope in the abolition of slavery. What lessons can we draw from that history when it comes to human values?
1: Uh, well, one thing I think we can draw from the abolition of slavery is just how contingent a matter, what values we live by are, where I was surprised that when I started learning about this, it's you know probably the mainstream view among uh, historians that the abolition of slavery was not a result of economic factors. Instead, it was a cultural change. And really, if history had gone a different way, in my view, we could have current levels of technology but still have widespread legally permitted slavery. And that's quite a terrifying thought and means that it's just very important that we have generations of moral activists
0: uh, pushing to make the world better. Well, now might be the time to talk briefly about Benjamin Lay.
1: Sure. So Benjamin Lay was uh, one of the most colorful characters in the abolitionist movement, uh, born at the end of the uh, 17th century. And uh, he was about four foot ten and called himself kind of Little Benjamin, uh, likening himself to Little David who killed Goliath. And he would engage in these kind of guerrilla theater, guerrilla stunts uh, to protest the owning of slaves by Quakers, uh, including memorably Uh, At one Quaker meeting, he kind of walked in and gave a speech holding a Bible filled with fake blood and plunged his sword through the Bible, splattering the audience with fake blood and saying that owning slaves was as big, as great a sin as his desecration of the Bible.
0: He's an extraordinary fellow, isn't he? Absolutely marvellous and should be better known. You don't argue that we should be promoting any particular values, rather keeping our options open.
1: That's exactly right. Um, I think we should think of ourselves as being very far away from the correct moral views. So in just, you know, and we look to the past, almost every generation in the past has got th- have got things seriously morally wrong. Uh, we should think there's still plenty more moral progress to go. And that means that we want to build a world where many diverse moral views can flourish.
0: And that also means that you all, from time to time, provoke huge disturbances in the conversation, as, of course, Peter Singer has again and again.
1: Uh, Yeah, I mean, you know, these are ethical issues. They're topics of debate, and I'm glad they're, uh, you know, I'm glad they're being debated. And that's part, I think, of how we make
0: moral progress. Now, going back to Peter, he is, of course, most passionate about animal rights. Do we also have a a duty to consider what the lives of animals might be like in the future?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, when I think about what changes we could have done in the past that would have had a long-term impact, if we could have kind of quelled the rise of industrial farming, which now inflicts horrific suffering on 80 billion animals every year, Well, if we could have done that maybe decades ago, we could have gone on a different course. We could have instituted animal welfare regulation such that it wasn't so costly um, for the world to not be inflicting such torture
0: on animals. A striking trend amongst uh, young people today has been the choice not to have children for the sake of the climate. What are your thoughts on this dilemma?
1: Yeah. I. I um, ultimately think that the idea that it's wrong to have a child um, in order to, you know, mitigate climate change, I, I honestly think that's a mistake, and that's for a couple of reasons. One is just that it's possible to offset the carbon emissions of your child, where it costs about, you know, uh, $1 if targeted to an extremely effective climate nonprofit to mitigate one ton of carbon dioxide. That means that if you were donating, you know, something like a 1000 Australian dollars Uh, every year, maybe $2,000 or $3,000 every year, then you could offset the carbon impacts of your child a hundred times over. Uh, And so, you know, and that's not dramatically increasing the cost of a child. The second, though, is just that we need to look at both sides of the ledger where children provide enormous benefits to the world, as well as uh, the harms of uh, climate change. And we need to take both of those things into account.
0: You're ultimately optimistic about the future?
1: Uh, Yeah, ultimately, I think both that the future is, you know, going to be good. Um, I think there are positive trends, and I think we can capitalize on those positive trends. Uh, And I think it could be very long-lasting and flourishing indeed. Um, But most of all, I think that this is something that really is within our control. Um, If there's one thing I've learned, it's that small groups really can affect lasting change. Individuals can make the world a better place.
0: I like something you write here. Quote, my aim with this book is to stimulate further work in the areas, not to be definitive in any conclusions about what to do. William, I thank you very much. William McCaskill, Associate Professor in Philosophy at Oxford, and his latest book is What We Owe the Future, published by Hachette. Thanks, William. Thank you. And we'll uh, bring you the other side of the argument, the case against long-termism, before the end of the year. Think bigger about the world we live in. Ask
1: your smart speaker to play ABCRN.